Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on David Carpenter of Gameotics. Gameotics is a software platform that brings choose-your-own-adventure-style agency to the live entertainment experience. So you're in the audience, and you get to choose how the narrative branches, meaning you decide on the actions of characters and other elements that impact the story arc and outcome. CEO David Carpenter joins us to talk about the gamification of live entertainment and what it means for you as an audience member and content creators. This is not the future. David and Gameotics have it up and running today. Listen in and check it out. There's a lot to dig into. I'm so intrigued by what you're up to. But first, I have to ask a little bit about your background. It looks like you came up in the entertainment business really through the sales side and through the business side. Sales and marketing and then production, right? So yeah, so yeah you're right. I mean, the business side is production. But yeah, that, I, I started mostly in sales and marketing and then I moved over to production and started producing, I don't know, 12 years ago. Well, with that context, where did the bug first bite you to sort of be more interested in and passionate about the overall experience than just selling the ticket? Well, I mean, sales and marketing was a pathway for it, right? It always, it always was. It was never like I went in to go and sell Broadway tickets. I just happened to be my early, like it was just what I did in my 20s because not a lot of people get to do interesting things in their 20s, right? I, I would say going all the way back to high school, I was more interested in the whole production than I was just acting in the shows or directing the shows. And that stayed true in college. I was always more interested in the art of putting on a production and putting on an event than I was just just being an, like just being one small piece of it. Could you talk a little bit about the value of that time spent, especially on the sales side, like yeah. coming up through the business in that way? Are there tangible lessons that that are still with you? Yeah, I have a great answer to that question. I can give it to you now, or you can or you can remind me of it. Which is, at the end of the day. A, a producer, an event producer's job is one thing and one thing only, sell tickets. Nothing else matters, right? Everything you do is driven, to, is driven towards selling tickets. And so learning how and why consumers react to buying things helps inform you to how it is that you, you choose content or you make decisions in how you are crafting the message of your show. And I still am oversee all the sales and marketing, you know, even from a high level on everything that I do, because it, it's all about consumer psychology in, in selling the product. Let me, let me actually dial it back one second. You talked about being interested in, in the world of production and theater early on, going back to high school. What, what's the genesis of that? Like, what were your early experiences? Were you a theater goer? Were you like, talk about that a little bit. So I grew up in Atlanta. I was always entranced by theater from a young age. I loved theater from a very young age. I was fortunate that my mother was on the board of the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, which is a major regional theater company. And at that time, Kenny Leon, who was a very celebrated African-American director, was the artistic director there. And so 
the work that I got exposed to was extraordinary. I mean, I met Ethel Fugard as a 16-year-old. It was insane, like when he came through. That really helped format this passion and this love for entertainment. But I also, I come from an entertainment family. So I've grown up going back many generations for a family that has worked in TV and film for multiple generations. So I, I grew up with the idea of me going to work in entertainment and work in live entertainment was not a challenge. Not something that your family tried to talk you out of? <laughs> never, never once, never once. You know, when I, when I said, hey, I want to be a theater major, they're like, well, get some other classes behind that, but go to town. Talk to me a little bit about your theater program when, when you were in school. What did that encompass? So I went to Bucknell University, which is not a, a BFA or an MFA program, a Bachelor's of Fine Arts or Master of Fine Arts, right? In those programs, they genuinely, as a rule, force you to, from the beginning, do a discipline, acting, directing, line, mm. right? So Bucknell was not that. I was an English and theater double major with a minor in dance, because why not? And I did everything. I did. I was a stage manager for the dance company. I was in the dance company. I did scenic design. I directed a ton and I acted in a ton of stuff. And that broad breadth exposure to all of the aspects of, of production, I, everything from PR, the box, everything has what has made me a better producer. Cause the, cause the producer, as I was explaining to people is the CEO of a company. They are in charge of the entire of everything happening and they better know something about everything that's going on within the company. And the producer is no different. We're also, unfortunately, in theater, you're also the, the financier. You're also the CFO at the same time, which is kind of a pain. But I am right now the CEO of two different companies well, with that purpose because I could, I, my knowledge base of going now going back you know, almost 30 years is pretty broad about a lot of different departments. I can talk to you know, I could talk to any different department and have knowledge of what it is that I'm talking about. To fast forward a little bit, it was a little bit hard for me from the outside to fully grasp what exactly you've got cooked up over there. So give me the elevator pitch because it was intriguing as hell, but I don't know if I could say it to you. What I'm interested in is dynamic live experiences uh, where the audience has agency in the experience that they are diving into, whether it's a solo experience or whether it's a group experience collectively that you have a theater or a concert or some, anywhere that you're experiencing live art, live entertainment. And what the software does is the platform that enables a two-way communication between audience and content that allows for dynamic experiences to be filled, but the audience to participate in the nature of the experience and uh, to the effect that they collectively or individually change the direction that the experience is going into. You could look at this from when I was seven years old reading Choose Your Own Adventure books and having that agency and loving to have that agency to, I'm a big video gamer, big board gamer. I love repeat experiences. I love trying to different strategies and doing different things and taking that concept of the gamification of experience. And gamification a lot of times means I choose as opposed to you give me the information and I let it wash over me as opposed to me saying, well, I want to do this. What happens next? What's the consequence? And that's what Gaming is built to do, is that to provide a, a whole new level of what we call experiential entertainment in the world. So when I hear you describe that, my sort of low fidelity mind goes to, you know, I was a New Yorker for the better part of 20 years, goes to something like Sleep No More. I, and I would imagine a lot of folks bring that up as a sort of knee-jerk reaction. Is it safe to say you're applying a technology layer that, where that was more of a sort of choose your own adventure, wander around, interact with cast, you're doing something different? 
Sleep No More is a big inspiration for what it is that I'm doing, right? I mean, I'm building upon the success of what Sleep No More is, which is you as a consumer, when you go to Sleep No More, you have agency. You choose what floor to go to, what actor to follow, what storyline. Everything you choose crafts the experience. But the experience itself never changed and has never changed. It's a three-hour show on two loops to run six hours every night. That's what it is. And they dump you in at various timed entry points, no matter where the story is happening. And then you kind of dive in and you go. But you cannot make a decision that changes the content, full stop. They've experimented a little bit here and there with that. And that, you know, but in reality, it's always going to be the same experience. And what I am after in adding this level of technology is you make a decision that changes the experience because you've made a decision. And the experience is thus different moving forward. And if you go back and do it again and make a different, different decision, the experience changes as well. Now, you probably couldn't apply this technology to something like Sleep No More. Because what I'm doing is I'm building this for the next generation of experiential entertainment so that they can build their own stuff rather than insert this into existing models because I'm about the evolution of experiential, not trying to solve. The next sense is like, I'm not really solving a pain point for stuff that works. What I'm doing is solving a, a, a whole different suite of pain points in content creation. It almost sounds like what you're describing is a platform on which to create. It's a, it's a tool set upon which to create. Yep. Great. So I'm, I'm starting to grasp it. I, yep. Thank you for putting up with me. It's tough, right? I mean, like, I mean, I always tell people it's like before there was Uber and you're like, hey, here's this thing that calls a car. You're like, why? I can just call a taxi. It's like, no, Uber to the platform order to bill, all, you know, then, you know, like, and all those other things. Like, that's the, that's the problem. So I'm doing something that doesn't exist in the world and still finding the ways to talk to people about what it can do as a platform. Platforms are tough to explain as always. What kind of talent, casting talent, is required in a situation where the audience has so much agency? What does the cast have to be prepared for? And and are you truly choosing or are there storylines that you get? Like, can you unpack that a little bit for me? Like, how, what, do, what do I do as a cast member? Well, I mean, it depends on the type of content that you want to build, right? And so we're talking, we're looking at what demiotics can do. I mean, we're, we're diving deep into the museum space that you can take a audio guided tour, which is a linear, passive, fed to you experience and put it all on your phone, not even through an app, just through the, through demiotics, which is web based software. And that software allows the consumer to go through an existing institution and have their own adventure based on the content that is built. So like you can look at it from that solo experience way of saying you're, you are responding to the content that's already created or this pathway that's been created. So we're looking at talent. You're looking at people who can design branching narrative stories, who can design branching experiences, which exist in the world. There are actually quite a lot of people. Most of them work, if not all of them work in video games, because that's a lot what video games are. But looking for, I mean, from a content creator standpoint, looking for people who understand how to be able to move from a linear story into a branching story is tough. But that, you know, of course, is what I'm, what I'm building on my own right, but also what we see all the time. And so we found people who are really excited to, to do this and to try it and to make mistakes. And, and so I got this company I'm working with that's an opera company that's always wanted to do a branching narrative opera where the audience is choosing where they're going. They're and they're learning from us and they're call us and say, well, we have this, like, how do we solve this problem? And we, you say, all right, this is what we know, you know, within your content. So there's, there's that aspect. I think the other thing that I'm working on right now is, is this experience called the 20-sided tavern. Now I'm a partner in that experience. And 20-sided tavern is Dungeons and Dragons style gameplay. 
It's inspired by that gameplay that allows for this live entertainment show where the audience and, and everybody on stage comes together every night and participates in this story world to do an adventure, to do a journey every night in a theatrical environment, in a seated theatrical environment. The audience is using gameotics from their seat in order to participate and make decisions in the telling of this story and the actions that are happening in the story. So for an actor, and I know the, the, kind of the heart of your question is like for an actor, they're doing what I would describe as long-form sketch comedy, and they have to know things about RPG gaming Right. And the mechanics of it, and how RPG gaming works and, and, and the way that it, the way that it works within a game. And so we kind of find people that can have those skill sets built in because they, again, they exist in the world. Really, the thing for us is identifying what skill sets they have to have and then training them and how to combine them to build these characters that they're building is what, is what we have to do. But in this modern age of, of gaming and gamification, all the skill sets are out there. We just have to go excite people and find them. As a gamer, where does your passion lie? Like, what do you, are you an, in, do you like independent games? Do you like blockbusters? Are you AAA? Like, where, where do you come down? I mean, no question, AAA. I love AAA games. I'm a big board gamer. I love board gaming with friends. I'm a huge fan of that. I switch is great because it gives me like everything from like really fun stuff to really weird small stuff. Do I play that? I mean, I'm a big consumer of games and sci fi fantasy. Part of the other half of it is like, that's on gaming is just like a, just a, a read a, a huge amount in, in Swords and Saddles, Alta, to Heart 4, Space Opera. I love these big story world pressure. Because at the heart of it, like, I'm a storyteller and I love storytellers. Have you played Kentucky Route Zero? No, I haven't. I'm not by any means a knowledgeable game player, but my oldest son is. And he kept saying to me for months, Dad, you have to check out Kentucky Route Zero. You have to check out Kentucky Route Zero. And I finally sat down and played it with him. We played on Switch. Switch, okay. I would I would suggest don't read too much about it before you play it, but but if you want to read a little, it might just intrigue you more. In terms of the agency you have, it's incredible. It feels deceptively simple. Yeah, but it it unfolds into a beautiful. At the, the I would dare you not to be emotionally moved by the end of it. I mean, I would say the best video game I've ever played in my life is Last of Us Part One and Two. If you've ever had a chance to sit down and play that, it is it is simply the one of the best story games I've ever ever come across, and it, and it is celebrated as one of the best games. And honest to God, it is. I mean, it is a deeply, deeply challenging but also emotional game, and you really get wrapped up in in that story. But I'll I'll check out Kentucky Route Zero. I'm always looking for I'm always looking for stuff. <laughs> what role does the technology play? Because it seems to me that just to go back to the sleep no more example, the technology there is more just about production design, right? It's not, I don't experience any technology really as a fan or as a, uh, as a participant. What role does your platform, what are you facilitating happening? You're putting the power of agency into the audience's hand. That's what it does. And so the audience is invested and has stakes and has control to, to lack of a better word, over the experience that they're having. For the content creators, it allows them to build a whole different type of storytelling in live entertainment that isn't, that isn't out there. So the thing with 20-Sided Tavern is that what we've done is that we've created an experience that speaks directly to gamers who also happen to love live entertainment. They might not be theatergoers. They might not go see a play. But there are people who want experiences. And look, Sleep No More owned the market, at least in New York, on experiential for a decade. It was 10 years before things started really kind of popping. I and mean, now, like, Stranger Things will do an experience when they're doing a big marketing push. And Secret Cinema is theoretically coming over from the UK now in terms of their film experiences. 
there's a marketplace that's really growing. I mean, like if you really want to take a step back on experiential, uh, Disney started it. And their amusement park is an, is an interactive, immersive, experiential playground, right? And Disney started that. I mean, this is, you know, obviously born out of amusement parks, born out of carnivals, right? But there's always been a segment of the audience places that have always wanted to go and have experiences and rides and games and things like that. So it's always been, that's been part of our popular culture going back in the 19th century. What we're seeing is just this increasing level of sophistication. So you look at something like Meow Wolf, and the reason why Meow Wolf is so successful is that they built a really cool story into their walkthrough experiences. And they built something that is that you discover as you're going through and, and, and it washes over you and you are part of and you are interacting with this experience. You know, when you go to Disney, you are interacting with the world, but it's not really like what Meow Wolf does, right? In terms of the level of detail they go on to. I would say that one of the smartest things that Universal did was the Wanda Harry Potter world where you can spend $80 on this piece of plastic with an RFID chip on it, right? And then you're allowed to have an experience around the park where you wave the wand and a thing happens, right? And that's also what the audience is after is saying, that is a one-way conversation. I wave the wand and the thing happens, conversation dope, right? And I participated in it. What Gameonics allows for is this dynamic two-way conversation that is ongoing. So I, I answer a question, I get something, I do something on the device, and then the result of that is then fed back to me. And I go in, depending on that result, into the next question, to the next question, to the next question, that it builds upon itself. And that's what the, that's what the story editor of Gameonics does, is it allows for all of these nodes and all of these branches so that everyone can have a unique experience or you can go back and have a different experience the second time you walk through. That was also, again, like as a kid and as an avid video gamer in my 20s, I love playing games over again and seeing what I missed or what I still do. I love going back and playing games on, well, I don't do it anymore. I start games now on hard, but I used to start games on medium and then go back and play through on hard with my skill level up. So that, that, that idea of replayability is something that exists within live entertainment, and I wanted to make it way more fun. I mean, we've all seen Star Wars movies over and over again, right? Within live entertainment, if I'm going to create this aspect of replayability, then I wanted to do it from a wholly different angle of, well, if you're going to come back again, it's going to be a different experience in the same box that we're in, but you're going to have a different experience. And again, I think what you're picking up here is all of my experiences have contributed in some small way or some large way towards this thing that I'm now building for the second half of my career. One of the things that one of the plays that I produced was this play called Puffs. And Puffs was a parody of the Harry Potter universe that we started in uh, 2015. It's a brilliant play. Matt Cox wrote an absolutely brilliant parody. Kind of two things happened is that the fandom at that point in, in 16, when we launched the show Off-Broadway, there was no other content to serve them at that moment in time. So there was this window of opportunity that we weren't even fully aware of, that we were lucky enough to jump into because at that point, the original slate of movies were done. The books were obviously done. There was no new announcement on the new movies or the new or the play at that point. And we slipped in and the show was not hit right at the gate because the fandom was starving for it. Well, all these other things happen and we keep running. And that show ran for three years in New York. And, and now it's the number two most produced play in the U.S. So it's this massive hit. But it could only be done through a parody. And what I realized in, in that experience was that, especially, I mean, this is where I started breaking away from working on Broadway, is that Broadway was servicing people who want to go to Broadway. There was a much bigger audience out there of people who wanted to get serviced by fandom content. 
And Puffs was the one that started breaking through for me. And those fans, I mean, I had people come back and see the show 20 times in three years. 20 times in three years to see the same show. That's, that's always the same show. Maybe with different cast members, but it's the same script 20 times in a row. And I really thought, gosh, there's something really powerful if I can create something and build this. That's where this technology really started in saying, gosh, what am I able to create a platform that is never not servicing the needs of this fandom and actually does one better that says, hey, come back and get a, and get a different experience. And, you know, when we were looking at entertainment product lens cycles and we're looking at these at these ideas of putting these things, like I, genetics can be used to refresh the content that you're serving your customer base within live entertainment in a really simple, efficient way. And that, again, is also something that I was after. It's like, how do you lower, the customer acquisition costs in live entertainment are high. And you look at many other businesses in the world that they've been able to solve customer acquisition costs. A lot of entertainment is bad at it. Like the only, the most successful things that you see are, are music artists, right? If you are a fan of Lady Gaga, you are going to Lady Gaga. You don't have to get sold to Lady Gaga after you've been a fan. Like music arts are really good at that. But when we're looking at like traditional theatrical or musicals or anything on the, on the other side of things, it's not the case. And so again, wanted to solve a weirdest problem that I thought, well, this would be fun to see if I can tackle this. Yeah, I, I would imagine that when you couch it that way, to your earlier comment, I would imagine a lot of people on the business side didn't even, they thought of it more as intrinsic to the business as opposed to a problem to be solved. Like you go see Wicked. Some people will go multiple times. Most people won't, but that's just the way it is as opposed to trying to say, well, how do we make it fresh? Look, I love Broadway. I worked in it for 20 years. But all of my friends and colleagues and a lot of my investors come from this world. One of the challenges with it is that it is an insanely stagnated business built on a non-workable business model because it doesn't work at all. It was deeply frustrating when I, when I finally broke into the top tier of it to be like, wait, really? You all really believe in this business model? Well, this is insane. But like, it works for a small select group of people, but that isn't, but that what I realized is like, that wasn't a business that I wanted to be a part of. Like personally, this can be deeply personally is that I graduated college in 2000 and I moved to New York to go working in theatrical entertainment. And that's what I did. I mean, my other option was to go to LA and work in film and television. And I was just really wanted to live in New York, right? I mean, that I was drawn to the city and then I got into the act Of course, then I missed the 10 year, let's say the eight years of that, of my generation who all went to work in tech startup in Silicon Valley and, and made and lost fortunes. And while I was building my career, one of the things about, about Silicon Valley and the tech, like say what you will about it now, but the amount of innovation that's been going in there since the, since the late eighties, early nineties has, has changed the world in an enormous way. I mean, for good or for evil at this point, but it, but the amount of technological innovation a few years ago, when I made the decision to go all in on demiotics, I remember thinking, there's no reason why I can't bring technological innovation into entertainment. It's just no one's thinking in this direction because the business models are so old. No one thinks that they can be changed. And I was like, they absolutely can be. That is what the promise of technology is, is that it can be a disruptive factor. It's really hard to disrupt this business, right? This has been a slog to get through and convince people that this is a necessary thing that I'm doing, but it's starting to work. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. One of the things that along those lines that comes up for me is you had mentioned, did you say that you're a, you're a 
co-producer on 20 Sided Tavern? Or it's I'm, a- I'm a partner in 20 Sided Tavern. The Guinea Ox is a partner in it. I have two other partners in the venture. Are you finding that in order to, to have sort of a showcase or a full articulation of the platform's capabilities, you have to take that, like you have to be a creator as well so that you could show other people how to do it? What, what I've done is I've built my first enterprise client for my software company, right? And, and, and so I now have, you know, Section Zero, which is the producer of 20 Side Tavern, will be a more profitable company to start than Gameotics will be because of, of, by virtue of what it's doing, right? But, but 20 Side Tavern serves as an example and a commercial for the power of what Gameotics can do. So, you know, once that business is launched and I can take a small step back, it gives me the fuel to be able to start building in the other verticals that I want to tackle, because I actually don't want to be a theatrical producer anymore. I'm quite good at it. And I'm very, very talented at it. I have the connections, but there's more, I have more ambition that I'm after with gameotics, but I need an example of this working in the marketplace in order to continue to sell moving forward. So the example that I always give people is Nintendo wouldn't have been Nintendo without Super Mario Brothers. And Nintendo developed Super Mario Brothers, you know, along with their team of creators. And then once everybody saw, oh my gosh, if they can make that kind of money off of, off of that experience or that gaming experience off of Nintendo's platform, well, I want to write my own stuff for the platform. And that is straight up the plan is to build something successful, which it already, it already is in its own right in order to inspire other people to say, well, I want to, if they can be successful, I want to be successful, then I want to jump in that. It, it's actually exactly what Mark Benioff did with Salesforce, right? Mark Benioff built a really smart piece of database software to help business solve pain points for business. But now a ton of people make money being Salesforce experts who don't work at Salesforce. Yeah. And that's the kind of economy that you want to build when you're bringing new, ne- new technology in the world. You want as many people to play with it. I would tell the other thing too. It's like, it's my big problem with the Potter world, which is George Lucas, when he built Star Wars, let a lot of creators in to help build out this giant world. She has not done that. She is deeply, deeply controlling over that work. And it's to the detriment of the IP when, when you do something like that. You like, I don't know everything. I want other people to tell me how gameotics should be used. So that's just, it's a philosophy. It's a, it's a type that we, that, that, that I've taken and saying like, this is the type of thing that I want to build. Yeah. Perhaps in, in the rush to, to learn more about you, I skipped over maybe something formative, which is, do you have a, is, did gameotics have an origin story? Was there an aha moment? Like, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, there wasn't a necessarily a problem you were trying to solve, except something you intuited. So back in 2015, 2016, I get my years confused at this, especially after COVID, everyone I think is very like, there was Fair this enough. year blah, right? I came across a play that wasn't in New York, but it came across a play that was a branch, was a branching narrative experience. Basically, it was a rom-com about a guy going on a date with a girl. The premise of the show was that this guy was a total loser, always unlucky in, lo- unlucky in love. He finds this magic item and a genie pops on this item. And the genie's like, I'm going to help you. And the genie is there to help this guy with this date. Well, when the audience walks into the theater before the thing starts, they were handed four button remotes that were radio frequency remotes, ABCD, tied to off the shelf polling software. And so the show was at, at like, I don't know, 15 moments, maybe 20 moments during the show, the audience would vote on what the guy should do on his date next. And there was a point system built in, right? So it was a game on stage. There was a point system built in. And by the end of the show, if the audience had voted 100% the right way, he would have slept with the girl at the end. And if they voted 100% the wrong way, 
that he would have thrown himself off a bridge. And then there were 10 different endings in between about how this thing went, right? I remember seeing it being like, this is the first time I've ever seen every, anyone successfully execute this idea on stage for the whole audience. And I opted. I was like, oh, this is a great idea. And, and very early on, I was like, okay, this idea of handing the audience something when they walk in the door will never fly because I need to build a product that I can scale. I need to build a product that I can license. You simply can't hand stuff to an audience. Well, luckily, and a lot of this, as you know, is all based on, on luck and, and certain circumstances. I got hooked up with this programmer, this guy named Dave Keen, who at one point in his career was the senior architect of the Sony PlayStation Network. And I said, hey, I've got this, this problem. I said, I think I, what I want to do is I want to take this control function for the audience, this agency for the audience, and put it on the smartphone. And Dave said, Dave at the time was working, in, was working in healthcare. And Dave said, oh, we can build an app. But I said, no, 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 we can't build an app. I said, I'm going to describe this as the, it, it's 8.02 p.m. It's the 8.02 problem. It's 8.02 p.m. And the consumer arrives at the theater. And they haven't read their emails. And they don't know what it is about to see. And it's raining and they're grumpy and they've had a bad week. And they show up at the door. The show's already started. And some usher says, oh, no, no, no. You have to now download an app in order to enjoy the experience. I said, you lost that consumer from that point on. We have to create something that is disposable, right? And this was before people started getting really anti-app. So it was, it was actually, we we're in a very pro-app period at that time. And we've seen dozens of examples of live entertainment properties develop apps and fall flat on their face. Because the consumer, it's hard enough to get them to buy a ticket. As I said about custom, like it, that is the hardest thing you can do. You can do nothing in putting barriers in front of them after that. They have to be able to walk into the experience and have it. And so... What we did is we made it web-based from day one. It was, it's always been web-based. It will always be web-based. You know, back then you had to go to a website and enter a code. Simple enough, right? Like go to this website, enter the code, you're in, right? Like two step. That was the like two clicks and you're in thing, right? Which was, which was, I think back in the time, it was like, that's what we're trying to consumers to do. Now you QR code in and you're already in and, and the communication protocol has been established. And that's it. That's all they have to do if they want to play the show. If they choose to play the show, is just scan that QR code, off you go. It's on your webpage. And then when you leave the theater, you Close that webpage in and it's gone. And you've given no data unless it's voluntary. You've, you've not provided anything through that because it is just simply a tool for you to be able to engage with the experience and nothing else. And that simplicity allows for, from minute one, the audience to trust what is happening because trust is also a very important factor in entertainment that we must believe or we must willfully suspend belief in order to engage with the content. And when you are doing something as complex as we are, when we're talking about agency, when we're talking about everybody participating, they have to believe that their actions that they're taking on their phone during the experience are, are true, that we are counting the vote, that we are believing. And this, as, as it turned out, turns out to be a very important concept in modern day right now, that trust in when I give you something and I'm not stealing your data or not taking it. I didn't know in 2015 how important that would be right now. So... What I tell people about Gameyotics is that what we built is something that is disposable for the consumer and robust for the content creator. And that's, that's how that relationship works. And that disposable nature of it for the audience member is really important. Does the QR code expire or could I keep the web page open and see what happens tomorrow night? Well, I mean, on the back end, I just close the showdown and then you can't get back in. Gotcha. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, we have built in security protocols so that, so exactly what you're talking about doesn't happen. You still got to pay to get in. Is that a feature someday, though, that like it becomes an extended universe? 
Long term, what I in and this was born out of the pandemic. So what something that happened to the pandemic was in March of 20, everything shut down. Right. I was on a I was actually on a path in, in the first attempt to build demiotics and in and, and then everything fell apart in March of 20. And what I did is I gathered all of my outer work friends together and said, you know what we're gonna do to entertain ourselves, but really it was like, all right, I still gotta figure out how to build this company, was we're gonna build shows on Zoom. We're going to build branching narrative shows on Zoom. Everyone at home is going to have gameotics. So they'll QR code their code in at the top. And then everyone will be able to be entertained and play from home. And it was this production company that I had called Seize the Show. And we built 20 hour long experiences in 18 months during the pandemic. Well, the pandemic for me is a blur because I actually worked harder during the pandemic than I, than I had in a long time. And what we did is that we discovered how gameotics could be used with entertainment because I really didn't know prior to that. And we built out all these use cases and then built more tools into gameotics as, as we were as we were going along. I was very grateful that Zoom Theater died last year because it is a horrible platform to produce on because it's not a platform to produce on yet. It's not there. And I think we all know that streaming entertainment in that fashion, streaming theatrical. Like, you know, it's just, it's simply not the same. We were able to break through to a small degree because we were live real time entertainment, entertaining, like people were having a real time experience from their home using this teleconferencing portal. Like that's really what it was. But the nature of online performance is really tough because you can't build the production values to compete with Netflix. Like simply can't. I'm going to sit down. I want to watch Netflix. They put on good movies and good TV shows, right? Where I think this is going and where I'm positioning Game Yonics and 20 Sider Tavern to go is this concept of hybrid entertainment, which I believe very much in, where I could be doing a Saturday night in Vegas with a major D&D you know, star and podcaster starring in the show that weekend, and we could Zoom broadcast to everybody at home and they're playing along, right, using gameotics in real time at home, having the same experience that the people in the theater are. And I've actually solved something I've also been after, which is a scalability problem, which is instead of 500, nuts, 500 to 1,000 seats that night, you can put on an event that's 10,000 people around the world who care about what you're doing. And suddenly you've gone from selling 1,000 tickets to 10,000 tickets, and you've been able to scale and open up a whole new revenue model for what it is you're doing. And I end after that, it's just going to take a couple of years to get there. But there are other people are starting to talk about that now. I'm coming from the standpoint of you've got to give people a way to interact. Yeah, no, that, that's, that to me, that, that's a fascinating aspect of it because I think what you're, you have a much more interesting take on what I would reductively call like the live streaming problem in entertainment, right? Like there was a pop during the pandemic, a bunch of companies got funded, were acquired. And then we realized, oh, nobody wants to sit around and watch a concert on TV if they can go to a concert. But what you're talking about is different and, yeah. it, and it's the gamification and it's the, it's the agency that, that is completely different. It's fascinating because you could play with price scaling. Maybe there's a different price for being there, not being there, what your level of interaction. It's, it's fascinating. That, that's a really interesting take on, on sort of the live streaming entertainment problem. I hated it. The consumers hated it. We were forced to do it because of the pandemic. And then the minute things started opening back up, I was like, okay, this is dead. But there's still something here. There is something worthy because I did get consumers say who emailed me saying, I miss that. I miss at seven o'clock at night sitting at home and playing a game with people all over the world or playing a show with people all over the world. And I was like, yeah, it just, I couldn't build a, that wasn't the entertainment company that I wanted to build. I actually wanted to get back to live and in-person entertainment because quite frankly, that's where the business is. Like I want to be a pioneer in that, but I want to do it on a different set of terms. Well, it's interesting also though, because, uh, you know, 
when live streaming was was sort of popping during the pandemic and there was so much discussion around like is it here to stay i kept thinking of it as a format it wasn't necessarily some new way people were going to go to concerts it was very similar to what you're doing it was a new way creators were going to present their art so a live stream wasn't going to replace their concert the really thoughtful artists were going to get their hands on the idea of live streaming and say what can i do for this medium I think we've seen that some of the successful music artists, like everybody talks about the BTS example and, and what those kids did with their live streams, but they didn't simply plug in a video output to their concert. You know, it's if you watch a BTS live stream, they created a whole new format. It's a it's a different type of show. And those are the folks I think that that are on to something different. Well, at a company like that, which is public, by the way, and the Korean stock standards I love about them, right, has the capital to use it as a marketing and community building expense, as opposed to saying this thing has to make money because the, the financial models don't actually quite exist to say we can make all our money back from lock, from this aspect of live stream. It's still coming because again, you, you it, it, it takes a lot to change consumer behavior and build up the value proposition of what it is. So like, I think that on Broadway, when Hamilton had already been filmed, right? And it was sitting in the Disney vault because Lin-Manuel was like, well, we'll release someday. And then Bob Iger said, we're in the middle of this pandemic. We must release Hamilton now on July 4th. And Liv was convinced of it. There's a lot of people was like, oh, this is the shift. But the problem is, it's like when you're Disney Plus and you spend $50 million to acquire that, which in that thing cost, I want to say, 5 to $10 million to produce on its own, right? For Disney Plus launching a $50 million like marketing expense, which is what that was, was worth the money because they got all of the PR notoriety behind it that, oh my God, you can watch Hamilton. It was a brilliant move on everybody's part. It was a brilliant idea. Problem is, because these things in New York, if you're going to film this on Broadway, can cost up to $3 million to perform, Netflix isn't running around buying all these things. They really are because Netflix is not getting a big return and it's why you don't see them happen more often but Netflix isn't getting a big return. I mean, they did Diana during the pandemic because they were desperate for content, but we're not seeing a lot of stuff. Like there are a few things here and there. Part of it is this economy that needs to be created to support a show saying, yeah, let's spend $3 million because we're going to make it back on the, on the live stream or the distribution of live streaming alone isn't there yet. It's simply not. As, as somebody from that world, as an insider there, is that, are those costs a function of the, the, the guild infrastructure? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, it's such a weird catch-22 because the unions want their money up front, and a lot of people want their money up front because the economy doesn't exist for them to get paid adequately for the work that they're doing. And so they cost a lot up front, but there's a kind of this weird feedback loop, which is, they cost so much to produce, so you can't actually build an autonomy on it. It stifles innovation. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. Look, I'm not. I'm not an anti-union, but no one's been able to kind of really break through the concept of how do we do this together. And one of the problems on Broadway, honestly, is like that's just a, a pebble in the stream of the amount of distrust that exists between the unions and the theater owners and the producers on all fronts. I mean, we're talking of decades of distrust now between the two. So. Like it's, it's beyond stifling innovation. And we're talking about, we're talking about, again, we're talking about a business model that inhibits itself to evolution. You know, when I produce Puffs, I produce Puffs non-union across the board. And I filmed the show. I mean, you could actually go see Puffs on Amazon or Hulu or Google Play and see our live stage. And I didn't spend $10 million and I spent about $150,000 on it. 
it's taken a number of years, but it's about, it's, a, it's almost recouped that money. But it was never like, it never was enough money, it wasn't enough distribution on it to say, oh gosh, I really want to, I want to build a business around this idea. There just simply isn't enough. For you and for Gameotics, what's the next big milestone that, that you need and want to achieve? What's the thing that, that you have your sights set on? Literally right now, we're in a massive rebuild of the software code. I have been operating like many, many startups do. I have been operating off of a prototype for years and using it in success, but I can't scale the current version of the, of, of the software. But when you build prototypes, you make decisions to build the prototype that lock you into certain things that are then suddenly, you can't easily unpick that code and fix it. It got to be a whole scale redone. So I'm very fortunate. I got seed funded and the, you know, that funding is an ongoing process for my investor in order to do the rebuild, the re-architecting of the code, which I, I like this month is the big month right now. I will have a new, what we call Gameotics 2.0 out by end of this month, beginning of next, roughly. I mean, we're, we're like, we're in, we're in that, we're in that moment right now being like, okay, like all of these things are getting built and we're starting to stitch all these different things together as a team of programmers who are working on it. That's the next major milestone is that once I have that, then I launch 20 side tavern in Chicago this fall, which will be a big showcase. And then, and then we start executing our go to market strategy for Gabiotics in a larger way. I mean, I, I would love to be able to do everything at once, but I have to, the 20 side tavern needs the new version. They will have a version of the code, no matter what, that will work for the product launch, for its product launch in Chicago. But I have to kind of hedge my bets a little bit and be like, okay, is this thing really ready for wider, wider appeal? Twice on Tavern is a B2C business, like full on stop. I'm licensing the Gameotics technology inside Twice Side Tavern for them to use to build their show. And then I have to, and then I'm also sitting down and building a B2B business. And so that's a big part of what I'm doing is convincing people that they want to start using this platform in their next round of creative development. I could, I could see a lot of inherent challenges into, into convincing a producer of, of an additional expense. But I suppose if it fits the creative vision, that's sort of one one conversation. But the other is, does it replace anything that's currently in their budget? No, it adds to, but I built it in a way that, I mean, we built it like we made a conscious decision early on, early on this year to build it as a SaaS model so that it can fit easily with an existing financial models. I mean, when you're looking at it from an enterprise scale, yeah, it, it, it costs you something to use the software, but your experience on enterprise level is that you built your company off this platform. So, well, we're not partners, but you're sure in bed with me in the building of this thing. So that, that's the relationship that I have with, with 20 Sided Tavern, which is it wouldn't exist without the software. So other larger entertainment companies saying, Hey, we want to get a new experiential. We want to, we want to play with this. Yeah. You're going to build some products out and see how it works. I'm focusing on opening up new avenues. Like I said, in the museum sector about how we can add to stuff that they have already, stuff that they have going on and things that we're doing. But a lot of my conversations are with other entertainment companies who want to get into experiential and see my software as the way to do it. And just working on making sure that it's a cost-effective way for them to be able to do it and then I can build the business. I mean, ultimately down the road, when you're in SaaS, what you want is everybody to be able to create these types of experiences. So we've started, the, the conversation that you have is that this is ripe for, the pub quiz market that I want to throw a pub night. I want to throw a quiz night. Oh, I have this Gimme Oxford where I download a program and off I go and I can run my own quiz night in any bar anywhere in the world. There isn't anything really out there that can service the individual consumer on a whim like that. 
I mean, I get a lot of comparisons to to like Jackbox where you're playing games with your friends and it's close, but not quite. I mean, like there's enough differences and I'd be like, well, it doesn't really work like that. What I'm trying to do is empower a creative class and empower people who want to be able to do this stuff on their own on whatever scale it is that they want to build it on. So the, the problem with that, that pub is that's a large scale idea. And I'm like, I have to now, as I'm building the first year of this company, focus a little bit narrower on what this can do with certain partners and certain verticals. And that's why I made the decision to build 20 Side Tavern. It's like, I know this is successful. I know this is going to work. I mean, I know how to produce it show. This will help start opening up these other doors and these other verticals. So how long before I'm having my choose your own Star Wars adventure, David? As, as soon as I can get a conversation with LucasArts uh, back on the table. I, look, they, they love this stuff, right? I mean, they all want to be doing this stuff. I'm making the point to all of them and saying, you don't want to be a software company too. I know you guys build a lot of software internally, but you don't want to build this software. This software is complicated. And I spend years figuring out how to build this software, you know, with my engineers. And so like, treat me like you, like you don't, you don't build your own like D3, like imaging computers to like build your animated films. Somebody else built that and you license these computers. That's all I am. I'm a software company. I am, I am having success in that, except they want to see it working with somebody else. They want to see somebody else take that very first risk first and say, hey, look. And I, and I understood that when I really started about a year ago, pick up the phone and flowing all my contacts with entertainment, that was the message I was, the underlying message I was getting is saying, well, I want to see somebody else use it first. So you build a successful enough IP play with 20-sided tavern that gets you a large enough IP play to, to follow on. And then it starts to other people come over the wall. Like 100%. It. 100%. All right. Well, David, thank you for uh, for bearing with my prep questions and for uh, telling me about what you're up to. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to experiencing it. You know, there, there's also something that I find very almost idealistic or or optimistic in the bridging of the gaming world, which gets a lot of flack and I think is often misunderstood as being isolating with yeah. something that's, that, that bridges it into a more communal real world experience and allows people to have the experience they want at their comfort level. Like you can imagine all kinds of applications for all kinds of people who have different abilities, different desires for how they participate. It's really exciting. It's so fun. I, I think we talk, I, I do, certainly we do internally about all these different communities that we're after. And what's so funny when we talk about gaming, because gaming, of course, has built and has become this multi, multi-billion dollar industry over the last 40 years. But it's no different than sports. They're two sides of the same coin. Like, sports is gaming. Like, it, it's a, you're going to literally watch a competitive game. And the stakes that you have is for your team and your players. And your investment that you have is, is, is buried within that. It's no different than what, than what we're, that we're doing. It's, it's just that live entertainment hasn't been able to to bridge this quite yet. Like, did you ever see Medieval Times in New Jersey? Because I, I love Medieval Times. I think Medieval Times, Medieval Times is, a, is basically this giant experiential place in New Jersey where it's jousting and horse riding and, and all these things, of media, literally Medieval Times. And, they, and it's, it's just, a, it's a big sporting event at the end of the day. And gaming and sports have been embedded in our culture for thousands of years I'm starting to make some four ways in it within it with, with defining this in a different way in live entertainment. Well, that's ambitious cool. and, and that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm wishing you the best and uh, I'll be a spectator and hopefully a participant soon. Hope so. Thank you for making time. Thanks so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, David Carpenter and the team at Gameiotics. 
And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.